So this week we're going to focus on the first two of these 10 commandments. Uh, So let's just look in Exodus chapter 20 and I want to begin reading in verse one. The Bible says, then God spoke all of these words and then the commandments began. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt out of a place of slavery. And so God has established a relationship with the Israelites even before he rescued them, even before he gave them the Ten Commandments. That is so important. And we spent our time last week focused on that. Verse 3, do not have other gods besides me. We call that the first commandment. Uh, Verse four, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Doesn't that sound odd? God says, I am jealous. He goes on to say, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So here we see the first two commandments, these instructions that God has given his people, the people that he has rescued, these instructions about how to live a life inside God's family, how to honor God. So what what does this mean? God says, don't have any other gods before me or besides me. And he says that we shouldn't make any little statues and worship those statues. But in our culture, in our day, how does this translate? What is this saying to us? Well, I think it says three things. The Bible indicates that that the Lord is telling us three things that are important that we should know about him. Number one, he is saying, love me exclusively. If if you look back at verse 3, when he says, do not have other gods beside me, he's saying, love me exclusively. Now, the problem with the Israelites, the danger that they faced was not the danger of atheism. There was not a big chance that they were going to abandon worshiping and following any God. They were not about to become atheists. Uh, They also were not in danger of paganism. That means switching from worshiping the one true living God to worshiping some other God. So atheism was not their danger. Paganism was not their danger. The danger that the Israelites faced was pluralism. And what that is, that they would worship the one true living God, the one who had rescued them from Israel, but that they would also worship a hundred other gods, that they would worship Yahweh, the the God of the Old Testament, but that they would also worship the God of the crops or the God of of having children or, or, or the God of war or the God of weather. In those days, most people worshiped not just one God, but many, many gods. And whatever their need was, they would, they would imagine that there was some God with a small g, we would say, some pagan God, some false God, but they would look to that God to solve the problem that they faced. The danger for the Israelites was that they would worship many gods. And so God speaks into that culture and he says in verse 3, do not have other gods beside me. You must worship me alone. 
Now, today, we face the very same danger. There's not much danger with, with you, with the people in this room, with the people watching on television or online. There's not much danger that you're going to become atheist. Uh, the, the, very few of us are tempted uh, to just abandon any worship of God at all. And so atheism is not our biggest threat. Uh, paganism is not our biggest threat. Uh, very few of you will be tempted, will ever be tempted to change your religion and worship Zeus or, or worship uh, some, some Eastern God or, 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 or become Muslim. There's very little danger of that. The danger we face is the same danger they faced it. They faced. It's the danger of pluralism. That we would add to our worship of the one true living God the worship of many other gods. That we would worship God, sure, but that we would also lean on, place our hope in, worship other gods. Now, we, we don't use the same names for the other gods that they would have used then. We're not worshiping the God of the crops and the God of the wind and the, and the God of, the, of lightning. But what, what do we turn to when, when we want happiness, peace, and security? Well, oftentimes we, we turn to wealth. We think that if we could just get some more money, that if we had more property, if we had more assets, then we would have more peace, we would have more happiness, and we would have more security. And so in that sense, then the accumulating of assets, wealth becomes a God for us. Whatever you're trusting in for happiness, peace, and security, that is your God. So we worship the one true living God, but we also, in a real sense, we worship wealth or money. Or some people will worship success. They believe that if they could just achieve a certain level of success, then they would be happy. Then they would have peace. Then they would have security. Well, when we think that, instead of thinking that happiness, peace, and security comes from the Lord, then we have made success another God. Sometimes we think it's politics. And if, if we could just have our party win, if we could just be victorious at the polls, then we would have happiness peace and security. And, and so what we do is we worship the one true living God, but we also place our hope in something else. People will do the same thing with love or with health. People will do it with alcohol or drugs, either legal or illegal. With any times we're looking to something other than God alone for happiness, peace, and success, then we have another God. Now, none of those things are wrong. It's not wrong to uh, to uh, want to have more material possessions and be able to have some nest egg. That's not a bad thing. It's certainly not wrong to have a, a, a political opinion. In fact, this is vote week, this week and next week. Every Christian ought to vote. That's an important thing. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. As long as those things do not become what we place our hope in. And so when God says, in this first commandment, you should have no other gods before me. This is what he's talking about, that we would worship two gods or three gods, that we would worship the one true living God, but we would also place our hope in something else. Now, David said in Psalm 4, 8, I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord, keep me in safety. He said, hi. 
I have peace in my heart for one reason. You, Lord, alone are the one who give me, who gives me peace and safety. You know, my kids are in the deciding life stage. I have uh, one kid is a sophomore in college and one who's a senior in high school and one who is a, a new teenager. And all three of them are, you know, in different parts of the deciding what they're going to do with their lives. Do you, you have kids in that age? Do you remember being in that age? And you know, what career path are you going to take and what school are you going to go to and what's life going to be like? And, and, and those things are not unimportant. I mean, that seems to be soaking up a lot of our time and attention at my house right now and has for years and will for years. And those things are not unimportant, but listen, ultimately our peace our hope, our joy is not going to depend upon our career path. It's not going to depend upon our job. It's not going to depend upon what part of the country we live in. No, if we're worshiping the one true living God alone, then all of those things, our peace, happiness, security, will depend upon the Lord. So how do we get this wrong? When it says, do not have other gods beside me, how do we get this wrong? Well, I think we get it wrong in two ways. Sometimes people simply put things ahead of God. So here it says, here's God, don't put anything before me. Sometimes, in just in a very simple way, we put things ahead of God. There can be things in our lives that become more important than God. And, and you can measure that. Uh, and I don't want to be legalistic about this, but it, it's, it's pretty easy to measure in your own life. Uh, how faithful are you to church? You say, well, I, you know, I come half the time or I, I come more than half the time a little bit. But, but see, if something consistently is keeping us or keeping our children out of, out of church, out of worship, God commands us to be here. God commands us to worship with our faith family. If something is consistently keeping us from worship, then that has become another God. In our lives, it has become something that we have put before God. You could look at somebody's giving. Do you give regularly, consistently, sacrificially? Well, if not, why? Say, so, well, I've got to take care of this, and I've got this need, and I've got this, this project that I'm working on. Well, if something prevents you from being generous and faithful in your giving, then that is something you have put before the Lord. Well, what about serving God? Do you serve? Do you, do you find time to serve the body of Christ in the church? Do you find time to be a part of missions? If you say, well, no, no, I just don't have time for that. Well, that's an example of putting something before God. So one way we mess up this command, have no other gods before me, is we just simply put something before God. But there's another way we do this. And, and, and this perhaps is more, it's more subtle, uh, but it is at least as dangerous, if not more so. We will say that God is the most important thing in our lives, and we mean that, but we mean it just by a hair. I mean, what we, what we, what we mean is that God is here, and the next thing is just right up under here, and the next thing is right up under there. I mean, God is important to me, but he is just slightly more important than what is next. But no, this command, when it says, have no other gods beside me, is a radical command that, that the things of God and our worship of God should be absolutely the most important thing in our lives. Not just a little bit ahead, but significantly ahead. 
In fact, let me show you, because I'm going to say some radical things in a minute, and, 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 and you'll not like some of them, perhaps. And so I just, I, I, let me, let's, let's hear from Jesus first. What does Jesus say about this? Well, Mark 12, 30, we sang this verse a moment ago. So now just listen to it. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And so that's a pretty strong commandment that loving God ought to be by far the most important thing in our lives, right? Notice he uses the word all four times with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And then he describes our effort by saying heart, soul, mind, and strength. He uses all the words that he could possibly use to say that God should be absolutely far beyond everything else, the number one thing in our lives. And listen to how he says it in Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus said that we, we ought to love him so much that that the love that we have for our parents and our spouse ought to look like hatred in comparison to our love for God. See, very well-meaning people will say, I've put God first in my life. God is first, family is second, and work is third. You ever heard people say that? Is that a good thing to say? Well, it, it is, so, so far as it goes. But oftentimes what people mean when they say God is first and family is second, they mean that family is right up here. It's just slightly less important than God. And work is just slightly less important than the family. But that's not what the scripture teaches. It would be better to say God is first, God is second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth. And then family is 11 and then job would fit in somewhere under there. We need to put God in such, such an esteemed place in our lives. Our, our pursuit of God should be so important to us that everything else um, pales in, in comparison. What if I told my wife, Donna, you are the number one woman in my life. Now, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it just depends how many women there are, right? <laughs> I mean, if she's one of one, that's a good thing. If she's one of three, she didn't want to be one of three. I can say, well, you're the number one. Well, she didn't want to be number one if there's a two and a three. What this verse tells us, what this first command is, that, that God doesn't just need to be number one in your life. God needs to be your life. Our focus is God. Don't, it's not God and success going to bring me peace. It's not God and relationships going to bring me peace. God and materialism, God and whatever cause I, I, I campaign for. It's no, God's going to bring me peace. I am a worshiper of God. And we ought to be challenged by this. You know, we ought to have more to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ 
than we have to say about politics. We ought, to have, have, we ought to be more faithful to giving to the Lord than we are giving to our retirement. We ought to be more committed to talking uh, to God and listening to God in prayer than we are checking our Facebook page. We ought to spend more time serving God than chasing after leisure. God doesn't just need to get a nod in our life. God needs to be the biggest focus by far that we have. Now, that makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But that means we struggle with commandment number one. You know, I've heard people say that if you look at the Ten Commandments, it starts easy and it gets harder as it goes. That have no other gods before me, that's easy because I'm not going to become a Muslim. But you get down to the things like do not lie and do not steal, that's, that's a little harder. Well, when somebody says that, they, they're demonstrating that they don't really understand the commandments. The hardest one is number one. And if you don't think you struggle with this one every day, then you don't understand commandment number one. Commandment number one is telling us that that all of our hope should be in God. Not God plus, but God. That's where our hope should be. Have no other gods before me. What he says is to love me exclusively. Now the second thing he says is to take me everywhere. Look at verse 4. He says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the sea. So don't make some little statue. See, if the first command is about worshiping the right God, this second command is about worshiping God in the right way. But let's be honest. Does it seem so bad? What would be wrong for us to make something that would remind us of God and use that something in our daily worship. What would be so bad about us making a little statue? What what would be so bad about us bowing down to a cross? What would be so bad if we were to decide to call this building a temple and when you pray in the morning, you orient your body and pray toward this temple? What would be so bad about lighting a candle in your home when you pray and, and imagining that that's the Holy Spirit? What would be so bad about us spending some money and getting some ancient artifact? You know, you can go and buy a, what is supposedly a, a, a piece of the Apostle Paul's hair or something, and you know we could hang it up here in the front and we could pray. What would be so wrong with that? Well, there, there are two problems, at least two problems. Let me tell you what they are. First, while we might start with the best of intentions, eventually people would begin to worship the image. I mean, the, the building or uh, the, the statue or the cross or the candle, we would start with the best of intentions, but eventually people would worship the image instead of what it stood for. And God knew that. So he said, you can't make an image. Years ago, I was in Rome uh, and had an opportunity to see some of the, um, uh, some of the images, some of the uh, things that are used there to celebrate the faith that people there use to celebrate the faith. And one of the most interesting ones uh, was called the Scala Sancta. And I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, uh, but uh, it was the Holy Stairs. So supposedly, uh, St. Helena uh, in the fourth century had the, the stairs that Jesus walked on to go up to see Pontius Pilate 
before he was crucified, she had those stairs taken from Jerusalem to Rome and set up there in Rome. And they've been there uh, since, uh, since the fourth century, so a long time. And so I wanted to see them. We went, uh, Donna was with me, and we looked at the stairs. But, and it was interesting, and, and we don't know if they were the real stairs or not. I, I, I don't know, and, and people were on both sides of that debate. I don't guess it really matters. Uh, just some old steps uh, to me. But when we looked at them, they had, they had glass over them or, or some sort of plexiglass. Uh, there were places you could touch them if you wanted to. I didn't care to touch them. But, but to see the people, some of whom had traveled from all over the world to come and crawl up these stairs, and they would, they would get on their hands and knees and, and they'd crawl up a stair and then they would just cry and weep and pray and beg the Lord for something. And they would crawl up another step and they would do it again. They're probably 20, 25 steps. And they would do this. They would get to the top and there was another place you could come down and they would start over. And, and they would do this all day long. Sometimes people would do it for days or weeks or months. They would spend all their time just crying and crawling up these stairs that God might do something for them in their lives or whatever they had requested. Now, at that point, it's not about Jesus. It's about the stairs. You understand? They weren't focused on Jesus. They were focused on the stairs. That's why they had flown for, for thousands of miles to get there and, and climb up over and over and over those stairs. So if, if we had some object it eventually would become what we would worship instead of simply an arrow pointing to the one true living God. But there is another problem. There is another problem that's important. If, if we make God a stone or a painting or a place, then we limit God. We would limit him. In, in the Old Testament, if they worship, worshiped a statue, Okay, and this is God said, don't make any statues. If they went and worshiped a statue, the thing about worshiping a statue is you could go to where the statue is and you could worship and then you could do what? You could leave and you leave God behind. In a sense, if you make God an object or a place, then you can go there when you need him. And when you don't need him, you can go away and you can be away from God. And God doesn't want you to get away from him. God wants us to take him everywhere. Don't make him something that you can go to. Let God be something that you take everywhere. Now, do we do that today? Well, we do. One way you see this is if you hear somebody say tongue in cheek, hear somebody say, well, you better not tell a lie in church. You ever heard somebody say that? Better not tell a lie in church. Now, I know we're joking around, but we wouldn't say it if we didn't mean something by it. What do people mean when they say, don't tell a lie in church? Because we think that somehow God is in church. And we're denying the fact that God is just as much at your house as he is here. God is just as much at the courthouse as he is here. God is just as much at your business as he is here. God's not here in some special sense that you can't lie when you're here, but you can lie somewhere else. That it's not as serious to lie somewhere else. See, what we've done is we've limited God when we say that. We, we have, I, I'll tell you the way, we, way this happens most often is we will compartmentalize our lives so that God is, this, is in this part of my life but he's not in this other part of my life. And, and I think probably the best application of verse, of verse four in our lives is, is, is we don't need to limit God to a place or an item or a relationship or an address. 
God needs to be a part of every aspect of our lives. But too many times we compartmentalize our lives so that we have a Christian part where we worship God, but then we have a work part and you know, the work part's different than the Christian part. And then we have the financial part of our lives and, you know, don't, don't nose in my financial business. And then we have a relationship part of our lives. But God says, no, take me everywhere. Don't limit me to one little item or one little part. No, I need to be a part of your whole life. We, we, we are constantly tempted, I believe, to compartmentalize our lives. Have you ever heard a story or, or known of uh, someone who was a servant, maybe they were a singer, uh, Andre, or a preacher, and then you found out that they were living a lie. They were having an affair or something was happening in their life. And, and you've wondered the same thing I've wondered. How did that person stand up behind the pulpit week after week after week with that junk, that sin in their lives? Were they just a fraud? Were they trying to be deceptive? Were they just trying to trick us? Well, probably not. Probably what had happened is they had divided their lives into compartments and they had the worship and love God compartment and then they had the illicit affair compartment and they were keeping those separate. Well, what he tells us here in this verse is that no, we must take God everywhere. There are no Christ-free zones in our lives. So I'm going to use Donna as all my sermon illustrations, I think, today. But, but I, I've been married to Donna for 23 years, 23 and a half years. Um, that's not a task. Me being married is not a task I do from time to time. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not just married when I'm with her. I don't take time off. It's not that I'm married uh, for two weeks and then I get a week off. It's, it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm married on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but not Thursday. I'm still married to her when I'm out of town. No, being married is a 24-7, 365 thing. What God is saying here in this commandment, that he wants to be, he was telling the Israelites, I want to be your 24-7, 365 God. I'm not, I'm not a little statue that you pull out or visit from time to time. I want to be your God everywhere and every day and every moment. Take me everywhere, God is telling the Israelites. And then number three, the third thing he says here is take pleasure in my jealous love. In my jealous love. Look, look at verse five. Uh, and really it's halfway through the verse, but we'll start at the beginning. He says, do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, jealousy, isn't that an odd thing for God to say about himself? I thought jealousy was just some petty emotion. I thought jealousy was a sin. Doesn't the Bible say that jealousy is a sin? Why is God saying he's jealous? Well, there's a difference between jealous of and jealous for. It is a sin to be jealous of. If you're jealous of someone who got a promotion, 
that you haven't received or you're jealous of somebody because they're prettier than you or they sing better than you or they're smarter than you or they're stronger than you. If you're jealous of somebody because they're getting some attention that you're not getting, all of those things are are sin. Jealous of is a sin, but not jealous for. God is not jealous of anybody or anything, but God is jealous for us. God is jealous for our affection and for our worship and for our praise. Is this proper? Absolutely. Because God deserves all of our praise. God deserves all of our worship. And if he doesn't get all of our worship, he is jealous for that that he does not get. You know, I am jealous for my wife's affections because I'm her husband. I don't want her giving affections to anybody but me. And if she gives her affections to somebody else, it would kindle my jealousy. Now, that's not improper. It is proper. She's my wife. And her affections are due to me. Now, God says, I am jealous for you because I am your God. And your affections, your worship is to be given to me. Now, God's jealousy, God being jealous for us. This jealous love is a good thing for us. We see here in verses five and six that he says God is jealous and then he, he punishes uh, the, the children for the father's sins to the third and fourth generation. Now that does not mean that somebody gets punished for somebody else's sin, but it says, it's, it's teaching us that that when we stray from God, the repercussions of that will reverberate not only in our life, but in the lives of those around us. But he says here in verse six that if we follow God, that he will pour out his goodness and his kindness and his love to a thousand generations. It is something, it is a good thing to be the, to be the object of God's jealous love. Now this isn't about saved or lost. This is about the benefits of the jealous love of God. Think about it this way. The earth rotates around the sun. You may not have known that, but it does. Do you know that? The earth rotates around the sun once a year. Now, if the sun were a person and the sun, S-U-N, loved the earth, then the sun would want to always stay the center of of the earth's orbit, right? In a sense, the sun would want the earth to always revolve around it. Why? Because if the earth careens out of the orbit around the sun, it will grow dark and cold and everything on the planet will die very quickly. And so the, the sun would be jealous for the earth's focus. Not just for the sake of the sun, but for the sake of the earth. Now, God has designed us, God has created us for himself. And we benefit, we know peace and joy and love when our focus is on him. God is jealous for our love because he deserves it and because that's our best hope. Our best hope. It is an amazing thing to be the focus of God's jealous love. Now, I love to meditate on God's jealous love for for this reason. And it's 
it is a wonderful thing just to sit in, in prayer and think about what all it means that God is jealous for me. But, but here's the biggest reason why I love to do this, why I love to talk about his jealous love. Because this answers what is for me the most important and the most difficult question in all the world. You know what that question is? What is the most important, the most difficult to answer question in all the world? It's the, it's the question why would God send his son to die for my sins? You ever thought about why God would do that? I didn't deserve for God to do it. And you didn't either. It wasn't that I had, I did something and God felt obligated. There was no obligation. Why did God send his son? I didn't deserve it. I didn't even ask for it. Uh, the, the Bible said that it was in the heart of God, before, way before it was in the heart of man, that we respond to God because God first reaches out to us. So I didn't deserve it. I didn't ask for it. He didn't owe it to me or to anyone else. God didn't send his son because it was the proper thing to do. Because it wasn't the proper thing. There was no expectation that God send his son. There was no precedent that God would send his son. In no way was God obligated. In no way was this a pattern that he needed to follow. In no way did anybody expect God to send his son. Why did God send his son so that he would die for the forgiveness of my sins and your sins? Why? Why? Here's the reason. Because God is jealous for my love. God is desirous that I would love him and that I would worship him. And because he, he is so desirous of that, that he's created me in his image, he is so desirous that I would love him that that's why he sent his son. Isn't that amazing that God sent his son to die for you? Not because you deserve it, that you asked for it, that he was expected to do it, but because God is desirous of your worship. So that, right here in verse 6, he can pour out his extravagant love to you and a thousand generations. Isn't that amazing? God's jealous love. That's why he sent his son. You know, we all love these love stories. Um, and I tried to think of one, a movie or something that we could all recall and I, and I couldn't. But, but you'll, you'll understand, you'll know the genre we all love these stories, whether it's a book or a movie or a tale, uh, where there is, uh, there is a broken relationship. And the man, let's just say the man, it could be the other way around, but the man, uh, his, uh, he loses his woman and the relationship is broken, but he chases after her. He doesn't give up. He pursues her. He, he does whatever is necessary. He goes to extraordinary lengths. And even though she might reject his love, he, he, he pursues her. He doesn't give up until finally he, he wins her love back. Everybody loves those. You like those stories. You, you go to those movies. And we enjoy those stories. But you know, the greatest example of love is that God has done that for us. That we've rebelled against the Lord. We have disappointed the Lord. We have stood against the Lord, but God has pursued us simply because he loves us. 
with a jealous love. What an amazing thing. If you have never responded to the love of Christ, and I think there are people who come to church every week for whom this is true, if you've never responded to the love of Christ, if you've never said, God, I have rebelled against you and I have sinned against you, but I recognize that you love me anyway, and I ask that you take the work of Christ on the cross, forgive my sins, and I'm ready to give you the worship that you deserve. If you've never done that, let today be the day because God is jealous for your love. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed, let me pray. Father, idolatry is, um, is serious and, and, and we're all susceptible. Help us to appreciate the seriousness and to put you first in our lives and not just a little bit, but let our lives revolve around you. But Father, I know that there are people in our church or people listening that um, sought to live good lives the best they've known to do, but they still know that they're broken, that they've rebelled. And I pray that you'll help them today to surrender to the jealous love of God. You sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. If we'll accept that, if we'll surrender and turn from our sins and trust you, you say that you'll save us. You're jealous for us, Father. Don't let us continue to run, but help us to turn. And Father, even as we stand and sing, I pray if somebody needs to make that decision, that they'll step from where they, from where they stand and greet somebody here at the front as we stand, uh, that we can help them today to make the decision to follow Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.